Well, good morning. It's great to uh, worship together, isn't it? Be together as the body of Christ. Well, today we are returning to our series in the Gospel of John. We've had some time off for Christmas, Advent, and Rod did a wonderful series on the churches of Revelation. But today we're back in the Gospel of John, starting in chapter 13, and we are going to go all the way till we're done, right through Easter and the resurrection and to the end of the book. So you can anticipate that. So far, up to this point, we've studied the first 12 chapters, where John, in the way he relates the story, is revealing to us who Jesus is, who he came to be for us as the Son of God as the bread of life, as the light of the world, as the good shepherd, as the door of the sheep, as the resurrection and the life. All these things that Jesus is, and ultimately he reveals himself as God himself, the great I Am. And we're told that John did all this later in the book. He says, These things I have written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that believing you may have life in his name. That's his goal. That's our goal for studying this book is that we might truly understand who Jesus is as we never have before. And we might believe in him and believing in him, we might experience his life even now as we walk through life here. So that's our goal, that's our plan. Today we're picking up, as I said, in chapter 13, where we're beginning what's commonly called the Upper Room Discourse, chapters 13 through 17. These five chapters are given at the Last Supper, Jesus' last night on earth. His last opportunity to prepare the disciples for his departure And so, in these five chapters, the longest discourse we have anywhere of Jesus, he is giving them exactly what they need to be able to continue on without him, because he will soon be gone. Now, Jesus' plan was to create the church, the church which is the most powerful force in human history. It's outlasted every human empire, every human power, It continues to expand and change people's lives. It's the most powerful force on earth. And yet Jesus was about to leave and leave it in the hands of these 12 ragamuffin, foolish, impulsive disciples. How in the world could he do that? Well, only if he prepared them properly. And this upper room discourse, it's one of my favorite passages of Scripture because it gives us the secrets of how the church can function even in our weakness and be the life-changing influence in the world that we are meant to be. It gives wonderful principles on how to depend on Him, how to change the world. And these were the leaders that He was leaving, these 12 disciples. It's really a leadership training seminar, if you will. <laughs> and as we go, at, go through it, we'll see that the themes are not build the right structure, learn how to manage, set vision, five-year plans. 
That's not God's plan for changing the world. In fact, the themes are much more relational. I'm the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Depend on me, Jesus says. Depend on the Holy Spirit in you. Learn to love one another. In fact, in in this book, in this section, the word love occurs 31 times. Whereas the rest of the book, it occurs very few times. You see, this is the theme of how we are a life-changing force in society, is how we love God and love one another. So we are going to jump in today in chapter 13, verses 1 through 17, as Jesus begins his discipleship training, his leadership training of these disciples by washing the disciples' feet. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this amazing passage of Scripture. Thank you for your word that is powerful. It's able to penetrate our very hearts. And Lord, we pray that as we look at Jesus and how he taught and loved the disciples, that we would learn to love you and love one another in a deeper way. Change us, Lord, by the power of your Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1 of chapter 13 says this, It was just before the Passover feast, and Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave the world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. This is the introduction to the whole upper room discourse. And notice the irony of it, really. Jesus knows he's about to die, and yet what does he do? He loves the disciples to the very end, to the uttermost. See, that's the very heart of God. In fact, that's why Jesus went to the cross, was out of his love for us. And this whole section is displaying his love for us so that we can learn to love one another in the same way. Twice in very key points in these five chapters, he says, love one another as I have loved you. So as we go through and see how Jesus loved, let's keep an eye on what we can learn about how we can love one another in the same way. Verse 2 and 3 then introduces this incident of the foot washing. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, etc. We'll get to that in a moment. What I want you to see is the connection. Jesus knew certain things, and so he stooped to wash the disciples' feet because of it. What did he know? Well, first of all, he knew that Judas was about to betray him. He knew that one of the twelve that he was loving to the uttermost to the very end. Even in this upper room discourse, even as Judas is about to betray him, he loves him to the end. He doesn't quit reaching out to him. He also washes Judas's feet. He loved him to the uttermost, to the very end. Even though he knew that, he kept reaching out and loving And it says he also knew three other things. It says he knew that the Father had put all things under his power. 
He knew that he had the resources of God at his disposal. He knew he could depend on what the Father was giving him to be able to respond in the right way. Secondly, it says he knew where he had come from, that he had come from God. He knew his origin. And then third, he knew where he was going, that he was going back to God. You see, Jesus' identity was wrapped up in his relationship with the Father. I have the Father's resources. I know that I came from him. I know I'm going back to him. Therefore, I can stoop and become a servant. His identity in the Father allowed him the freedom to set aside his rights, to serve freely from the heart, and ultimately to give up his life for us. Our identity is really key to us, isn't it? Think about the disciples. They needed to know those same three things so they would be able to be free to love others as well. In fact, as you read carefully through the Upper Room Discourse, these next few chapters, you see that those three things that Jesus knew, he was seeking to pass on to the disciples. He wanted them to know that they had the very resources of the Father at their disposal. He says a lot about the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit. You'll do greater works than I've done because you've got the very resources of God. He says several times, I chose you and the Father chose you. The Father gave you to me. In other words, their origin, they knew where they came from. God had chosen them. That's why they were his disciples. And then, and then he goes on to say where they were going. Remember that wonderful passage we'll study in two weeks in John 14. Don't let your hearts be troubled. I go to prepare a place for you. In my Father's mansion, there are many rooms. That beautiful passage that says, you know where you're going. Remember where you're going. It's taken care of. He's trying to give them an identity in the Father as well, just like he had, knowing that it's out of that identity in the Father that we are able to set aside our own interests and love others from the heart. Thomas Akempis says this, In our tendency to place people before God, which is natural for every one of us, we think that other human beings can fill our deepest desires, and of course they cannot. Yet sometimes we are almost literally slaves to others, sometimes trying to please them, at other times angry and demanding of them to give us what we want. You see, that's the natural tendency of a human being to depend on other people for life. But when we get our identity from the Father, Lord, I have your Holy Spirit, I have your resources, I have your forgiveness, I have your life. And you chose me to be your child, to be part of your kingdom. And you have a place for me, prepared for me. Then we're free from having to look to other people for life. And we're free to give freely to other people just as Jesus does here. Isn't that marvelous? That's the freedom that the Lord wants us to live in every day. In The Lord of the Rings, one of the central characters, Strider, who is really Aragorn, the rightful king. As you watch the movie, you see that Aragorn, though he knows he's supposed to be king, yet he struggles with that. He doesn't really believe it along the way. And he isn't sure he wants to take on that mantle. He struggles with his identity. 
But when he finally gets the sword of the king, at one point he finally believes who he is. He steps in and steps out to become the rightful king. That's who he was. He just had to come to a place of believing it. And it's that way with us. We have to believe that we are chosen of him. Our life is in him. We are his child. And then we can begin to step into the very place, not to become king ourselves, but rather to follow Jesus' example and serve. Let's see how he does that. How does he serve? Verse 4 through 8. Let me read those verses. So Jesus got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You don't realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, You have no part with me. So what does Jesus do? I don't think we get the full force of it in our culture, in our world, because we don't have these strict social separations that they had in New Testament times. But for Jesus, who was a rabbi, and the rabbis were the most important people in that society next to the priests themselves. They were looked up to by everyone. To be asked to, be, to follow a rabbi was similar to getting into Harvard. It was an incredible privilege. And the rabbis lived in that privilege. Jesus is a rabbi, and yet at, that, at this point, he chooses very deliberately, just think about what he's doing here, as he very carefully and deliberately takes on the clothing of a servant. I didn't know quite how to exhibit that. I thought about, you know, taking my shirt off and everything, but that somehow, my wife said that wasn't a good idea, (laughs) so I'll spare you that. It wouldn't really mean the same thing, but he took off his cloak, his outer clothing, so all he had was a long linen garment probably underneath. He wrapped a towel around his waist, so he was dressed completely as a slave. And in this garb of the slave, he fills the basin and begins to wash the disciples' feet. Now, when you came to someone's house, you would usually take a bath before you'd come. But, of course, they didn't have paved streets, typically, uh, and your feet would get dirty as you're walking from your house to this other person's house. So when you came in, generally there was a slave there who would wash your feet as you came in so that you wouldn't track dirt into the house. That was common. Only the lowest slaves had to wash feet. Well, because they'd had this meal that was essentially a secret meal and it was only the disciples, they had no slaves. And so no one had washed their feet. Well, Jesus takes that position, takes on the clothing of a slave and begins to wash feet. It's especially poignant, I think, moment at this point when you realize that Luke tells us in Luke 22 that when they came in and the disciples are all together, they had begun to argue 
about who was the greatest. <laughs> Twenty-two, twenty-four of Luke says, A dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. So here are the disciples arguing with one another. Hey, you know, I should get the best seat. No, I should get the... No, me. You know, he, he likes me better. I, I should get... And they're arguing over who's the greatest. And Jesus takes the very lowest position. God himself, the king, takes the lowest position and begins to very deliberately wash their feet. I can liken this perhaps to imagine if you're at home and suddenly there's a knock on the door and you open the door and President Bush is standing there. And he says, "Um, excuse me, I'm just here to clean your toilet. And he has a little brush and a bucket, you know, and he's dressed in his work clothes and he comes in to clean your toilet. I asked my wife, how would that make you feel? She, She said, I would just want to make sure I cleaned it first. (laughs) right wouldn't you feel that way because it's the president well that's kind of how it felt to peter that's why peter reacts so much here that's why peter goes what you're going to wash my feet jesus says you don't realize what i'm doing but you will realize later peter and it doesn't translate well in english but more literally verse 8 is Absolutely not. You will never, ever wash my feet, Jesus. (laughs) Forget it. Now, why is he so adamant? Well, Peter has confessed Jesus is the very Son of God. And he knows how to treat sons of God, right? You exalt them. But to have him come and wash your feet, your dirty, filthy feet, I think it pricked Peter's pride. But it also messed with his whole world. This, this isn't right. How can God wash my feet? How can he stoop to that? A leader, a teacher, a rabbi doesn't do those kinds of things. The world has an order to it. There's a hierarchy. You exalt the bigwigs. But you don't let them wash your feet. But Jesus is trying to make a very clear point here. He's trying to make the point that in the kingdom of God, in the church, life is different than out there. Leadership in the kingdom of God is servant leadership. It's placing yourself below others. It's placing yourself under them to seek their best. There is no pulling of rank. There is no big wig in the kingdom of God other than Jesus himself, ultimately. And he chose to act as a servant. In the world, leadership is based on position. You work your way up to the proper position. And the higher you go, you get more privilege. It's based on privilege, it's based on position, and it's based on power. The higher you go, the more power you have. The more people you have under you, the more you can tell them what to do. And that's proper in the world, in a selfish, self-centered world. But in the kingdom of God, as people are learning to get their identity from the Father and His resources, and my destiny set in Him, we function differently. Leadership means taking the lowest place. What Henry Nouwen 
calls downward mobility, not upward mobility. It's taking the lower place. Henry Nouwen did that. He was a professor at Harvard. He chose to set that aside and become a servant at a home for the handicapped, La Arche, in Canada. And he spent the last years of his life taking care of disabled people, changing their bed sheets, changing their clothes. And he realized that's what God had called him to do, downward mobility. And that's what God has called us to do. As we heard a few moments ago, Philippians 2, what a wonderful passage. Place others above yourself. Have this attitude which was in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, didn't regard that as something to be hung on to, to be grasped, but he let it go. Emptied himself, taking the very essence, the nature of a servant. That's what Jesus took on, and we can do the same as we follow him. The world functions by position, privilege, and power. The kingdom of God, leadership in the kingdom of God is different. Instead of position, it's humility. Instead of privilege, it's servanthood. Instead of power, we influence others how? By weakness. By our weakness. Remember what Paul said, 2 Corinthians 12? I had this thorn in the flesh. I prayed three times that you'd take it away, Father. And it, you kept telling, he told him, I will not take it away because my power is perfected in your weakness. The power of God is revealed as we are weak. That's the kingdom of God. You see, it turns the world on its head. Leaders become servants. We influence others out of weakness, out of dependence on the Father and on one another. That is the kingdom of God. Then he gives us a, a way to do that. What, what does it mean, actually, to wash one another's feet? We're called to do that, to follow Jesus' example. He says it a little later in the passage. Do as I have done to you. Well, what does that mean? How do we do that? How do we wash one another's feet? Well, I think in a, in a big picture, it's setting aside our interests because our identity is in the Father, I don't have to fight for my rights. I set that aside. And I seek the good of others. Setting aside my interests to seek the good of others. Whatever that might be. But right in the passage, we do get a spiritual application of what it means to wash feet, to be a servant to one another. Starting at verse 8 again. No, said Peter, you'll never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Well, Peter panics. <laughs> he thinks, wait a minute, the most important thing to me is my relationship with Jesus. I don't want to lose that. So he says, well, then, Lord, uh, not just my feet, but my hands and my head also. Give me a bath, Lord. If that's what it takes to stay close to you, give me a bath. Jesus answered, A person who has had a bath needs only wash his feet. His whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew what was go who was going to betray him. And that was why he said, Not everyone 
was clean. Now, again, they would come in, they would have bathed at home, and then when you come to someone's house, your feet would get dirty. And to be fully clean, all you need is your feet to be washed. So Jesus uses that picture and says, a wonderful picture, I think, of coming to Christ, of our salvation. When we come to Christ, Jesus washes us clean. We've had a bath. We are new creations in Christ. When you put your faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside you, and you are clean. You're forgiven. All your sins, past, present, future. Isn't that marvelous? But, as we walk through life, as we contact the world, our feet get dirty. (laughs) We still struggle in this world with our own flesh, with Satan's attacks, with worldliness. And therefore, we still bring sin into our relationships with each other. Our feet are dirty. We are cleansed by Christ, but our feet still get dirty. So what does it mean to wash one another's feet? Well, what do you use to cleanse one another, to, to, to wash? It's the blood of Christ. So to wash one another's feet is, as we are in contact with one another, help apply the forgiveness of Christ to one another. We see the dirt. It's a reality. When you're in relationship with other believers, they have dirt on their feet. We have, I have dirt on my feet. And we need one another to help apply the forgiveness of Christ. Yes, I see your sin. Yes, I see your struggle. But you know what? I forgive you. I want you to experience the life of Christ. So let's wash that clean. And let's experience the forgiveness and cleansing of Christ together. We still have sinful, selfish patterns that cling to us, but those can be washed away as we are in relationship with one another. The church is full of people with dirty feet. There is no church that only has people with clean feet. Sorry, that's just the way it is. So we are to wash one another's feet, enter in. As we get in relationship, we see the dirt, and we help one another become clean and experience God's forgiveness. That's a beautiful part of foot washing, beautiful part of being in relationship with one another. Now let me give you some cautions about this because this could be taken the wrong way. Let me. One caution is that... You may come into a body and you see people with dirty feet and you go, man, people here are not very godly. I'm going to go find a place where they're more godly. Well, all you're doing is running to another place of people with dirty feet. We need to learn to deal with one another where we are, realizing that every church has people who are still in process, still growing in Christlikeness. None of us are there. None of us. None of us. So don't run just because you see some dirty feet. Second caution. We are not to become foot inspectors. (laughs) Now, feet are pretty interesting to look at. You know, they're all very different. But our job is not to go around looking for dirt in everybody's feet. It's not to be looking for the bad stuff. As we are in relationship 
those things will come out. And we'll have to deal with them and work through them and forgive one another. Don't become a foot inspector, being critical of everyone else. You know those kinds of people. They do not help the body grow. All they do is begin to tear it apart. Don't be a foot inspector. Third caution is watch the temperature of the water when you wash someone's feet. H.A. Ironsides gives that warning, and it's a great one. Watch the temperature of the water. If it's boiling hot, you're just going to burn the person. If you come and they've hurt you, you see their sin, and you are angry because they've hurt you, and you're going to give them a piece of your mind as you wash their feet. That's destructive. Or if the water's ice cold, and you cram their feet in it because you're going to make sure that they feel a certain amount of pain that you punish them a little bit for not being more together. That's destructive. In fact, to wash someone's feet, we need to pay a lot of attention to the temperature of the water. It needs to be comfortable. It needs to be gentle. It needs to be caring. So people walk away feeling cleansed, feeling the forgiveness of the Lord. That's really our test of whether we've washed feet as Jesus did. With humility, with gentleness, for the other person's sake, not our own. A couple of questions for you then. Are you willing to enter into relationship with one another in a way that you may see dirty feet and you may need to help one another wash feet? Are you willing to do that? Some people will not get involved that close to one another. They're afraid. They don't like the dirt. But God's called us to enter into intimate relationship with one another. Secondly, second question, are you willing to submit to letting other people wash your feet? Peter wouldn't do it at first. (laughs) No way! No one's washing my feet. It's a very humbling thing to have someone else come and say, you know what, you have some need here of forgiveness. Let me extend it to you. You have the need of being served here. Let me serve you. Are you willing to humble yourself and let others wash your feet? There's a guiding passage that I go to a lot, and let me read it to you and and commend it to you as we think about what it means to wash one another's feet. It's in Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 12. Therefore, as God's chosen people, chosen, (laughs) we have an identity in Him. Because our identity is in Christ, we're holy and dearly loved. Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Take on the clothing of a servant. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. When you see dirty feet, it says... Bear within one another. That means forbear. That means put up with. Don't get angry because somebody has some sin in their lives, but put up with it, it says. Forbear. And forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. That's our standard. He's forgiven you everything. Therefore, you can extend that kind of forgiveness to others even when they hurt you. If your identity is in the Father. Let the 
excuse me, and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity and binds us together in perfect unity. Go back to that passage, Colossians 3, verses 12 through 14. Another passage for you to read in light of this is Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. I won't take time to read it now, but I encourage you as you think about washing one another's feet to go there. Well, Jesus ends with a very strong exhortation to wash one another's feet. Listen to what he says in verse 12 through 17. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Notice his exhortation. He's kind of repeating it over and over again. This is a big deal to Jesus. He's adamant about it. He says, look, I am teacher and Lord, right? That's who I am. And I'm serving. So you who are disciples should be willing to do the same. If I do it, you should be willing to do it. Let that motivate you. Then he says, follow my example. We're to follow his example, so we should do it simply as followers of him. Then he says, the servant's not greater than his master. What he's saying, he says, don't make yourself greater than Jesus. If we think we're above putting ourselves under other people, if we're too proud to serve them and build them up and seek their good instead of our own, we're actually putting ourselves above Jesus. How crazy is that? And then his final motivation is this. He says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. You'll be blessed. Your joy, your happiness, your fulfillment in life will not come from pulling rank on people, from trying to reach the top in the kingdom of God, but rather from placing yourself under. He says that's where real joy comes from. That's where life is, fulfillment in the body of Christ is when we are willing to serve one another. Why is Jesus so adamant about this, though? It's because he knows it's a struggle for us. And in fact, if you look at the history of the church, you see that the church has not done a good job with this. Leadership in the church throughout church history has tended to be just like the world, taking on more power, more privilege, more position, more prestige. And as a result, we've lost our power to influence the world because we're just another institution just like every other institution out there. So Jesus says, don't do it like the world. Die to that selfishness. Humble yourself. Place yourself under as I have done to you. So are you willing to be a servant? Am I willing to be a servant? There's an old saying. 
I don't mind being called a servant. I just don't want to be treated like one. It's true of all of us, isn't it? You can call me a servant, but just don't treat me like one. (laughs) Are we willing to be treated like one? A servant heart is what gave Jesus his influence, and it gives us ours as well. Well, Jesus' foot washing is a symbol of something he did the very next day. It's a picture of him going to the cross, giving up his life for us, setting aside what he could have grasped onto, being God himself, let it go, to humbly serve and die for you and for me. So now we want to celebrate communion as a reminder of what he has done for us. Because he died, he took the lowest position. He took on our sin. Therefore, we are given a new identity. We have a healed relationship with the Father. We have his life. So we want to celebrate that now as we take communion together. So let me pray, and the ushers will come forward. Thank you, Lord, for your marvelous example to us of washing feet to remind us that we are not to seek position or privilege, but we're rather to follow your example and serve one another. Lord, make us servants of one another, greater servants. But thank you that you were willing to humble yourself in an even greater way to go to the cross for us when we did not deserve it, when our feet In fact, our whole beings were dirty. Yet you chose to serve us by taking on yourself our sin. So, Lord, we celebrate your death for us now. We remember what you have done for us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. As the uh, bread is being passed out, let this be an opportunity for you to just ask yourself, what keeps you from serving others more freely? Confess that to the Father and bring it to Him and let Him wash your feet.